Hello and welcome to another Milwaukee Admirals podcast with Charlie Larson. I'm Aaron Sims. And Charlie, today we have a guy who has a connection to the Milwaukee Admirals, more so as an opponent than as a player, although he did appear in one game. And it, it strikes me that on our very first podcast we did, I think he's the first player that we mentioned because he, right? had just, he had just retired, had announced his retirement, and we talked about him and Cody Bass uh, retiring at about retiring. the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Former I think you're right. Aaron. We played in Springfield together, Cody six degrees. So <laughs> joining, joining us now is, uh, now he's, uh, he works for the Las Vegas Golden Knights, uh, as a, as an analyst on their television broadcast. Uh, and we can say former Nashville draft pick and former Milwaukee Admirals goalie, Mike McKenna, Mike, it's good to see you. Good to talk to you. How's everything going? That's great. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited. You know, I talk about a footnote of a career, one, one save on four shots, 12 minutes worth of action. I, I can't think of a better person to have on than the worst goalie in Admiral's history. <laughs> well, <laughs> hey, everybody. It, it's, it's funny you say that, I, that, that game and, and uh, somebody had posted about that game on Twitter and your social media efforts. Uh, I appreciate very much. And you had responded to when somebody posted about that on Twitter, you had responded in, in a very heartfelt, truthful manner that you didn't know if you would ever play in the American Hockey League again after that. It was a tough, obviously a tough moment for you. I thought it might have been all over. Yeah. You know, I, I get called up and like I'd spent time in the American League previously. The years before I was with the Norfolk Admirals, of course, I played for both Admirals. If you look right. at my career, I mean, it's not surprising that if there's anybody no. that got them both, it'd be me. But yeah, uh, so, you know, I'd spent a decent amount of time up the previous year in the American league. And I played games um, and it went okay. I won. I had a winning record. The rest of the numbers look like a credit card, but you know, things were going really well in the, in the ECHL with Las Vegas. And, you know, no surprise the team in Las Vegas was pretty good in the ECHL uh, for a lot of ancillary reasons. But so I get called up to Milwaukee and I'm really excited about it because I was a Nashville draft pick. And even though I didn't sign with them, I still had the connection with so many people in the organization. I was walking into a familiar setting. I knew all these players, right? I'd gone to four rookie camps with them or development camps and uh, goalie coach Mitch Korn was still to this day is like one of my closest friends, mentors. It's just crucial in my life and career. I'm thinking, great, like maybe I'm getting a chance here. And I knew they were light on goaltending. They had signed a lot of people. And I'm thinking, maybe this is an opportunity. And Pekka's hurt for a while. And they said, well, we want to call you up. It's probably going to be for three or four weeks. It'll be through Christmas, though. You're going to miss Christmas. And I'm like, whatever. Put me on the plane. I'll do whatever. Yeah. Anything, right? You'll do it. Yeah, absolutely. So we get in, and it's a three and three. And Carl Gehring plays the first two, plays lights out. And I may, by the way, Carl Gehring may be the best goalie skater I have ever seen in my life. Obviously, really? undersized. Oh, he's undersized. I mean, by a lot, right? Five, yeah. seven, yeah. eight, I don't know, ten. That's That he, might be generous. He yeah, was... He, <laughs> unbelievable goalie skater and what he could do with his size, like him and Jeff Lurg is another name, but yeah, I, I Jeff Lurg was listed at five, six. Yeah. yeah and that was real. And so <laughs> you know, I get there. And of course, another former teammate of mine, Jeff Lurg, but I, I get there and I'm like, great. Okay. I'm going to get this opportunity. It's a three and three. And I got the Sunday game and it's in Grand in, Rapids, you know, no, it's in Milwaukee. Milwaukee. It's in Milwaukee. 11,000 people. There's 11,000 people there. Yeah. Night. You know, just a casual 11 grand in the Bradley center. And I strut on out against the Grand Rapids Griffins and I'm thinking, okay, here we go. Well, I don't, I can't remember if the first shot, if I made the save on the first shot or not, I can't remember that order, but I went one for four. 
<laughs> and I mean, this is not what normally happens. And like when you go into a three and three on a Sunday game, all you're doing is trying to give the starter a day off, like yeah. not let him worry about anything. And so well, I didn't do that. I, I didn't make enough saves and Carl had to head back into the game for the three and three, which made me just as upset as the fact that I got ran out of the building. You know, I had, I'll never forget I mean, like the first goal goes off somebody's goes off somebody's back and in another one deflects from way wide. Another one's a one-timer on a five on three or something. And I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) And it's three and threes though, on a a three and three on a Sunday afternoon is the worst. And I, I mean, I don't want you to, you know, make excuses for yourself, but I can't believe that the guys in front of you, it's tough. It's tough to play three games in basically like about you know, 60 hours, 60, yeah. 75 hours. That's tough to ask. So, I mean, I'm not trying to, again, I don't want to make an excuse for you and I'm sure you won't make excuses for yourself, but it's a tough situation to be put in for a goalie who hasn't played in three weeks, probably uh, to be in. It is, but it's also kind of the reality. Like, you know, you're getting the poop sandwich game. Like that Sunday, <laughs> you never know. Like that's, you're legitimately looking at either a one, nothing or a six, five game. A lot of those. Yeah. Uh, or eight five cards. as the case may be. Yeah. They're just wild card games where anything can happen. If players are tired, if, if they just don't care, which frankly, when you're playing two and a half, two game, three games in two and a half days, you just want to get through it. And so right. some of them are snoozers. Some get out of control and, and this one got out of control very quickly. And I remember just being so upset, like so upset, like all I was trying to do the best I could make an impression. I remember like afterwards riding the bike for like 40 minutes, just burying myself and Claude Noel's like Claude Noel, the head coach at the time is like, take it easy, Mike. Like, it's not your fault. We know it's not your fault. But, so it's you, like, but I'm like, no, you don't understand. I'm never going to get another chance because this is all people are going to see on my stat line. Like, right. To stand out like a sore thumb forever, which it does. <laughs> I, you made a, a, an interesting comment on Twitter the other day. Is there any other goalie in Admiral's history to have just one save? And the answer is certainly no. Uh, there is only one other goalie who didn't, didn't get a, had a no decision, which I thought was strange. There's only That's 13 surprising. goalies in Admiral's history who've only played one game uh, since we've been a pro team, which is a long time. So you are part of history. Yeah. Uh, but the question I really wanted to ask you, though, is did you have a relationship with Claude at all through these, uh, like you mentioned, you're drafted by Nashville through development camp, through training camp, uh, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was Todd Richards and Barry Trotz and Claude Noel, Ray Shiro, like, were all around. A St. Lawrence alum, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I hold it against him to this day that he didn't sign me. <laughs> We're on the alumni council together and I always needle him about it. I said, why on earth would you sign that kid named Rene instead of me? I just can't figure <laughs> is this that, out. Is that right? Was that sort of what it came down to? Well, you know, like, and let me flip back really quick to that, that previous story. And we'll come back to this one. Yeah. That, like I left the building that night after we lost and I remember no, we like, won. Oh, we won. Are we won? That's the we thing. Won. We won. Okay. Eight so, to five. Well, and yeah. it was even real quick. It was three to two when you were pulled. So yeah. it, it was, it wasn't like out of control by any means. So, but I walked out of the building thinking I'm never getting another chance. Cause I knew I was probably going back to Vegas and like, I was just, I was in tears. I was just so upset that I thought this is it. It's over for me. Like I'm, my whole goal at that point was just to try to get to the American league and stick and it didn't happen. So 
I ended up going back to the coast and I got picked up by Omaha like a week afterwards, <laughs> ironically <laughs> enough. And I, and I played like two games for them. And then the next year I ended up in the American league, but like that was a low point in my career where I really thought I'm going to be an ECHL goalie the rest of my life. And then How maybe is- I'll go to, maybe I'll go to Europe for a year or two and see where it goes. And then, right. Look at where my career ended up afterwards. It's crazy. No how kidding. How, how was it when you got get on the bench, you get pulled when you get on the bench. Now you have to be a good teammate. That had to be the <laughs> toughest thing in the world. Uh, you know, you learn how to compartmentalize things. You put things in boxes. You just sit on the bench and you open the door and you do your best. Like you can't do anything about it. It's over. I mean, for all you know, you might be headed back in. I've seen the double pull before. But, right. Yeah. Um, especially a game like that. But no, it's numbing. It really is. Especially when it's like, there are people, you know, but you haven't been teammates with them and really been in the trenches, right. When you're a PTO guy and you just kind of feel like you're on an Island in the first place. And right. Um, yeah, it's, it's sobering. Like it really, like hockey will humble you for sure. This, so, I, I, I hate to get off on so many tangents, but when you I'm get, good as at a that. Goalie, I caused that to happen. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> as a goalie, when you get pulled and you're coming off the ice how often do you make eye contact with the coach or vice versa? Or, or is it just like your head's down and you go and sit? I think it depends on the situation. Like usually, it, I mean, it depends on the coach. Some coaches won't even look at you. Like there's so right. many coaches that, especially the old school coaches, I don't feel it's the same today because I, I think the humility aspect of hockey has changed an awful lot. But the old school guys would be like, you ruined the game. I'm not going to look at you. Yeah. You, you know? don't deserve my attention. Yeah. Like seriously, like there are a lot of goalie haters and they're still out there, but they've softened slightly. Like they'll take any chance to just take it out on the goalie and they'll give you the side eye. And uh, I, I think there's a lot different between an early poll or a poll when maybe like an early poll is generally like trying to change the momentum type of thing. Yeah. But there's also early polls where it's like, man, you suck and you're gone and you're out. <laughs> yeah. And those are the ones where you don't necessarily expect to look um, late in the game. It's almost like you'll look at the coach and he'll look at you. Yeah. Mercy poll. Mercy right. polls are way different. Like you'll kind of like make eye contact and it's almost like that sad puppy. Like, it's like, Oh God, we got to get him out of here. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's usually by goal, like five or six in the third where you're starting to look thinking, okay, maybe this is enough. And he wants me out of here. You can just sense it as a goalie. Right. Yeah. So, uh, they're different, but I think it's changed a lot. Like it, used to just be like get him out of here you know like you'd get that big hook from the side of the stage and that's literally what a coach wanted to do and and now it's a little different it's just you get the wave and it's over yeah absolutely so yeah. let's go back to, to to what you were talking about before yep. you graduate you're, you're a national draft pick you go to st lawrence um and but you went to four camps as you said four camps yep. but you never signed with nashville what happened there well, I think it was a combination of things. You know, when I went to St. Lawrence, uh, I was young. I was 18. I arrived on time, which made me on the radar for draft, uh, which made me on the radar as a prospect. But I really had to fight for my ice time. I had an older uh, goaltender, goalie partner, Kevin Ackley. Great. I mean, one of my really close friends, but he, we were in direct competition and he was a year older. He was on a four for four scholarship, full ride. I was on a three for four. I, I was out of the North American League. He was out of the USHL. Like, yeah bottom line like I really had to fight for my ice time and freshman year I did it went pretty well I ended up getting drafted our team wasn't great you know I, we joke around like every every scout in the building was there to see David Lenevu play for Cornell and here I was for St. <laughs> Lawrence and Mitch Gordon came to talk to me after the game right and yeah. Cornell was killing everybody back then we lost two yeah. to one and I played really well and 
here I am like two years ago, I was playing like Bantam, Bantam hockey in St. Louis had no idea how to even get to juniors. Right. Or three. And right. So here comes Mitch Korn. You know, I've been reading about this guy for years. Right. And so drafted by them and I did the camps. And the thing was like, I always did really, really well in these development camps on the ice. Like re- I know like really strong, um, especially the last year. But my numbers in college didn't back up the performance that I could bring in a development camp. And a lot of that is because, frankly, our teams weren't good at St. Lawrence. And I don't yeah. mean like, man, I'm, St. Lawrence was the best decision of my life, but we weren't good. And sophomore year, everything went off the rails for me, like big time, low point in life. Like, you name it, stop. I, my other my goalie partner took over. I had a bad like young child breakup with a girl you know what i mean like, oh yeah, yeah like 19 years old and like i just hit rock bottom but what i did it is it forced me to go to goalie camp and i started to do my own goalie camps because we didn't have goalie help so i did everything right. on my own by junior year i get back in the net and i like take over and start playing really well and senior year was okay in terms of like numbers but winning and carrying the mail and i came out and it was the lockout year oh four five so teams weren't signing goaltenders or players and they couldn't until even like into August. It was right. really odd, you know, and kind of what it came down to is Nashville wasn't a big budget team back then by any stretch. And no. they signed, they signed four goalies. Right. And so, you know, Pekka Rene was who they went with and I was not. And so right. um, I remember sitting there in development camp and I think it was, it may have been Claude Noel who asked me like, is this what you'd like to do? And I was like, oh, yeah, what, like, what do you think I've been at these development camps, man? Like, I, like, yeah, I, I got an economics degree, man, but like, this is what I want to do, you know? And so anyway, I didn't sign and I ended up getting a deal in Las Vegas in the ECHL. And it was just a, you know, 450 a week plus housing. And, um, but I do think that that experience with Nashville in those development camps was really, really good for me. Really good. The, the players that we had there, I mean, from the Radulov, best teams in, yeah, the Radulov, best teams in Hamus. Admiral's history are those players. Yes, Radulov, Hamus, Suter, George Tutu, Tutu, Fiddler, Hutchinson, Siegel, Kevin Klein. Hadar, Kevin Klein, Pekka Rene. Like, how many yeah. names did I just list that were big time players and still those are, are in the NHL? All and Shane those Weber. are all yeah, those are all leg, legends in Admiral's history. Yes, so it was a great experience, and I was really disappointed I didn't sign there. Um, but you know, I understood why I, I got it. Like I, it's just what it was. Right. So, uh, I just went to work in the coast and I figured, okay, I'll, I'll play a couple of years here in North America. We'll see what happens. Maybe I'll go to Europe for a couple. I'll probably play four or five years pro and be done and go take my degree and run off into the sunset. And now yeah. <laughs> 16, 17, eight year, 18 years later, here I am talking into a in microphone for a living. Yeah. Did, when did, when do you think you got your break? When, when was the break for, I mean, you make your NHL debut a few years later with Tampa, yeah. but when, when do you think you got your break that you could make that move? The biggest break I got was from the Anaheim organization when I got to Portland in the American league. And that changed the whole trajectory in my life and my career. They saw me play uh, in Traverse city when I went with the St. Louis Blues sure. and one, two, three in the goaltending categories at that tournament were me Andre Pavlik, Anton Hudobin, and Thomas McCollum <laughs> right below. But those were the top three. And I, and by the way, I mean, like, I feel comfortable at this point. And you know, hockey culture, you're not supposed to brag. Well, I was at the top of that list, right? <laughs> in those, from those that weekend, you know, in a tournament. And 
other goal we had Merrick Schwartz was a first rounder. And yep. He, sure. I mean, he, he, couldn't Louis, stop, yeah. he couldn't stop anything in that tournament. And, you know, I had like a 45 shot shutout and like it started to roll and it, people took notice, even though I was older and not a draft pick, it was like, Hey, they, maybe there's something here. This guy's been an all-star in the coast two years in a row. He finished second in league MVP voting. Like, so I had some juice behind me and ended up, I went to Vegas for my third year pro drove out there. My girlfriend drove out there. We had two cars. She was going to work. I was going to do goalie coach. And well, I ended up getting a week into the season. I didn't play a single game in the coast that year, just training camp a week into the season. I got an American league one way at the Portland pirates, who was Anaheim's organization. Yep. They had goalie trouble and they'd seen me play at Traverse city and got me on their radar. And I ended up playing, you know, 45 games or something for them and into playoffs. And that was the real turning point in my career. So if it hadn't been for Kevin Deneen and, and Brian Burke and everybody in the Anaheim organization, I don't think I would have even had that opportunity with Tampa, you know, another year and a half down the road. What, what, what was, what was living in Portland like? Uh, oh. I've heard great things about that city but then I know that there was uh, obviously they're not around anymore. And there was a bad relationship between the city and the team such so, so much so that they had to move like the day, but the week before the season started, they said, yeah, we're going to go play in so Is it Saco? Is that how you pronounce it? I'm Saco not really is where sure. The practice facility was, they went to Lewiston, which was an hour away. Lu oh, Lewiston. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was an utter debacle. Thankfully I wasn't there for that. Yeah. I was there the year following that I played in Portland for Fa three different NHL parent clubs. Oh Amazingly gosh. enough. That's um, crazy. I'll tell you what, the first go around in Portland was great. Like, and it was great the whole time. Like living in Portland, that is an incredible city. One of my favorites of all time. Like yeah, we lived I, on the water with like bald eagles and seals. And like, it was, in, it right. was crazy. Like the sunsets and the food. Fresh and lobster the whenever you want it. Oh, five bucks a pound. I ate more lobster in two years. Like <laughs> I, that, it, you should eat in a lifetime, but. Did you have I, a lobster I bib? I, I learned how to shuck oysters. My buddy, Jim at pine tree seafood. I walked in one day and I'm looking at the oysters. And I'm like, dude, show me how to shuck oysters. I've lived here for two years and I don't know how. Uh, so I, I played there and I, I loved it in Portland. And the first time was great. We had good fans. We had a good relationship. As you said, with the city, the arena was a dump. It hadn't been renovated yet, but I like the old crappy arenas. So yeah. it was great. You know, this is the second go around was a little weird because we were trying to build the brand back up and, uh, and that was different, but that was from a previous, previous regime. So that's minor league hockey for you. Yeah. I want to go back a little bit. You had mentioned about Mitch Korn and how you'd been reading about him forever. You, you are such a, and I use this term in a, in a positive way, goalie nerd. Like you, oh, yeah. you do reviews about how to wear the towels. If you're the backup, <laughs> the backup you towel. do yeah. <laughs> uh, all of these things and, and the gear obviously and the setups and, and all of that. But when, when for you, when did you start playing goalie in St. Louis? Uh, well, you know what? I actually had good foresight from my dad and grandpa that they didn't let me start when I wanted to. I wanted to put the gear on the first day I started. And that was right away. Five, huh? Was just, yeah. Five years old. I was ready. I'm a goalie. Um, I'll never forget. Like when I was a kid, we'd be in the basement and my dad would be shooting pucks on me. And <laughs> I remember one time my mom calling down, Terry, you're not using real pucks, are you? <laughs> and dad going, no. Well, he was, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> it's not like he was like forcing me to, I wanted the real pucks. Okay. My dad did not for, my dad was the best hockey dad ever. He didn't force anything on me. He just supported me. It's all I could yeah. have asked for. But uh, so they, they had me skate out for two years 
Like you have to learn how to be a hockey player first. Yeah. And people forget that with goalies. You have to be a hockey player. You have to understand how things work. You have to know how to skate, right? Goalie skating is way different, but you still need to know your edges. You need to be balanced. So I played out for two years and by, you know, age seven or eight, <laughs> which is still an yeah. early start, but by like eight years old, I was a full-time goaltender and, and it was my passion. Like anybody who follows me on, on Twitter or Instagram at Mike McKenna 56, see how good I am at those plugs. Now that there you I'm go, yeah, yeah, just but, dropped um, it in seamlessly. Yeah. It, you'll, you'll pick it up. Like that was my passion. I love the equipment. That's why I wanted to be a goaltender. I mean, I could pick a stick off the rack at age 12 and tell you every pattern. Like you could blind, you could pick any stick off a rack, a forward stick. And I could tell you the pattern, like that's how wow. in tune I was with it. And yeah, it's, it's, it's still like, it's still my passion. I just love it, man. Like that's what drew me to the, to the game and, and the goaltending. So which playing, NHL goalie go speaking ahead, real quick, which NHL goalie in history had the best setup? Oh, oh man. That's so hard. Cause I'm drawn to the old school setups. You yes. Know, like just and that's iconic, good because that's what I would know. The iconic ones from years ago that are, it's almost hard to pick out a singular setup, but you think of like, I'm going to move, I'm going to move to my wall here and show you a picture. <laughs> I hope you can see it of Gilles Melash. Yeah. Like I, when the color came in, that changed everything. And yeah, I, I always kind of revert back to Podvin and that I think he had the best mask ever. Greg Harrison, cat design, super simplistic. You could see it from, you know, the top of the building and, and just the colors and the pads that matched along with it. Like, I think in my youth, he was the first one who really got creative with it and changed everything. Um, but like the, the ultimate setup for me was the Bauer Reactor 5 set of gear. And I ended up wearing it in Texas years later as a throwback. And there were a lot of NHL goalies that wore it. Um, but yeah, like I, I think Potvin's really for my age group, especially, I think we all look to him as being the guy when it came to equipment and style. Yeah. So how, how did you then you must have taken an enormous amount of time and pride in your own masks and not just like uh, just everything about them. So first of all, here I, this is a two part question. Who did your masks and did that guy hate you because you were just like, <laughs> I, you know, nope, this and, is not, it, it's not quite right. I need it like this. And right? I need an addendum on that. Was it completely different every year? Uh, you know what? They, they were always different every year, but I was a big believer that you needed an identity in your mask. Like today, guys just airbrush whatever they want on and you can't tell what it is. A couple of logos right? here and there, right? Well, not even logos anymore. You put on, they put on like their favorite like Bronco rider and like just, you know, it's, hey, it's cool. It's your personality, but it's also like one, what does it have to do with the team and your city that you play for? And two, does any, can anybody see what that is from more than five feet away? You know, and I was right. drawn to, to Belfort and Potvin and Cujo and Ascenza and Beaupre, like these big, bold masks that were kind of iconic. And, you know, you carried your, Marty Turco, like you carried your design throughout your career. So I was drawn to that. That's what I wanted. And the first mask I ever had painted was college. And from that point forward, that same basic design, it was a racing design, actually. It was an IndyCar driver named Jeff Ward that I had a picture of his helmet from Indie Lights from like 94 or five. I still have the pictures. I was like, that's what I want. I knew it right away. I grew up in racing and I just, that's what I wanted. So we adapted it and throughout my career, it just kind of changed as it went. Um, Dave Art did my first several masks and then Dave Art started doing whatever Dave Art wanted to without wow. really asking me whether I liked it or not. And kind of just 
you know, you start doing so many masks, they all look the same and then start going in different directions. So he did some really nice ones for me. Um, but then I ended up with Ray Bishop at the end of my career, the last four or five seasons. And man, like this guy knocked it out of the park because he could do these big, clean designs so well. He did Ryan Miller's for a long time, myself, uh, Jimmy Howard, amongst others, and just super clean, team-oriented. And with Bishop, I could just tell him, here's your colors, here's some ideas, go with it. And I trusted him. And that was a really cool relationship. How does when it you work? Say, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say, when you say you grew up in racing, what do you mean by that? I've been to the Milwaukee Mile. My dad raced to the Milwaukee Mile. Uh, Indy car. So your races. dad was a, a race a race car driver. So my dad raced. Yes, my dad raced in SCCA Sports Car Club of America, four time national champion, President's Cup winner, uh, which wow. is the top amateur driver in the United States in North America, actually, which has also been won by names like Roger Penske, Jimmy Vassar, Bob Rahal. So all pretty good names. names. <laughs> yeah. Huge names, yeah. So. My dad raced very, very competitively in open wheel racing uh, in Super V's, which was Formula Continental at the time. Uh, and then as I got older, he raced in Formula V's. And so, yeah, I grew up around racetracks, road racing. We'd go to dirt ovals all the time to see friends race. And I loved it. I still love it. I raced carts a little bit as a kid. So uh, well, I wasn't very good at it. That's the thing. I'm, I'm hell on wheels at indoor karting now because I finally know what a proper racing line is. But as a kid, I just wanted to go as hard as I could. And I ended up in the grass. Right. Put the pedal to the metal, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, that was part of my childhood, man. That's why I wore, when I had the chance to wear number, wear number 56, my dad used that as his racing number. Wow. That's cool. So Dude. my second year pro, it kind of like dawned on me. I was like, man, like, first off I'm in Vegas. Why am I wearing a traditional number? And right. Like this would be really cool. Nobody else wears this. Maybe teams would let me use it throughout my career. Well, most of them did, but not all. Did when you were in Vegas, did they do because they 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 had this at, at one point and uh, and about your time, did they do the adults only game where you started at like midnight and uh uh I, I mean I, I hadn't heard any like salacious stories from it, but just such an odd, weird thing. But then again. I don't know Vegas very well, so maybe that's a that's par for the course. We had midnight games, and there wasn't an 18 and up night. And ironically, I was on recall to the American League for all three of those. Oh, really? <laughs> I got you know I was supposed to be there for the midnight game, and I got called up like the day before for one of them. And I'll never forget our coach telling us to like go out the night before to throw our body clocks off. Glenn Gullitson <laughs> literally told the guys like, "Hey, fellas, take it easy. Maybe just have a couple." But try to stay out until about one in the morning. <laughs> it was like the, the most odd ECHL thing ever to tell your team to literally go out to throw your body clock off. And then, hey, sleep till 10 in the morning. Like, <laughs> um, you know, and when you're 20 years old, 22 years old, like you could do that. I can't sleep past seven anymore. I've got kids. It's just my right. Brain, but um, so, yeah, like I just missed out on the midnight games. And that, that was unique because it's like in a city like Vegas, especially 15 years ago, it was still a 24-hour city. It's become much more of a nine-to-five now. There's traffic at rush hour. But back then, it was like go, go, go all the time. Very unique place. And so a lot of industry people could come and, and see the midnight game. And it was cool. You know, they do different yeah. things. The 18 and up game, I wasn't there for. Uh, I know they showed R-rated movies on the Jumbotron. Um, Did they, during the game <laughs> I, yeah I, I i can't remember the other things that were done that i mean it was adult oriented if i remember right oh did they have uh, people on the concourse handing out uh you know for for a fun time tonight call <laughs> this number like they do on the strip yeah like they do on the strip like this 
If you've ever yeah. been to Vegas, you've seen this. But yeah, no, you know what's funny about it is like when I played there, we had all these tickets that weren't sold. Well, every ticket on the backside of it had a, a coupon for a free drink at the Orleans where we played. So our mascot at the time, the Duke, would go and grab all the unsold tickets and he'd take half the stack and he'd put them in the visitor's room right on the trainer's table. So they'd be good and liquored up from the night before when we play against them. And we were really good at home. And then they'd give us the other half of the tickets that we would use like after games. Well, when you're playing in the coast, a free drink Any. ticket. I mean, like that's like hitting the Willy Wonka one. Like you're like gold yeah. ticket. Right. So we would do that. We, we basically, we knew all the, the bartenders and waitresses and waiters and like, we'd just tip them. And it was a great perk of playing in the coast in Vegas. They, uh, hey, they talk about, Oh, I was, sorry, Aaron. They, they talk about the Vegas flu in the NHL. Now, was there a Vegas flu in the ECHL? Oh, it was. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we won 18. Thanks to you guys with season. all the tickets, too. Right. Oh, thanks to the Duke, the mascot. Like that was yeah. the ultimate. Yeah. Like we we crushed it home, man. Like and we always had that saying. You just don't lose on Saturday night in Vegas. I, uh, you mentioned you mentioned Todd Richards and Todd told me one time when he he played in Vegas in the IHL mm-hmm. and he said playing in Vegas is the best he says but the tough thing is your third cousins call they want to come and stay with yeah. you for three days so you you can still have a, you can be a hockey player and have the normal hockey player lifestyle but you have to deal with all these people that need to crash at your place because they want to have some fun it's true. I, I had a friend that drove 48 hours round trip to be in Vegas for like a day and a half. Like that's the dedication and the desire of people to show up. And I mean, even like I'm playing in the coast. I remember Mitch Corn calling me asking if he could get a deal on a hotel room. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, dude, I'm making 450 bucks a week at the coast, man. I don't have any pull at the win. But <laughs> if anybody knows Mitch, it's very Mitch. I think it was more. Oh, that is than so anything. Mitch. Yeah, but absolutely. It, but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> He's gonna be so mad for me telling that probably, but like, it's our, it's our relationship. But I mean, it's, it is true. Like I would have friends and family and they would just not show up, you know, like you'd have a bad, like not a bachelor weekend, but you'd have like conventions and people would roll through town and yeah, you'd, you'd kind of just get them tickets and entertain them and go out afterwards. We mentioned uh, we're, we're bouncing around quite a bit here. Uh, you said Glenn Gullison's name, and I, I loved dealing with Gully when he was w- with Texas. Just yep. awesome guy. But he is one of 30 head coaches you've had uh-huh. in your professional career. That's remarkable. It's probably like think about my hockey database. There's teams that I dress games for right. that I didn't play. Right. Right. Absolutely. Vancouver and Florida. And I, and, I mean, I and just I think, about a half dozen games between those. Exactly. Teams. Yeah. And I you think I, I think I have all of them because I yeah. have Tom Roll on the list and and, and players oh, like hey, T Rex. Hey, there's a guy. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> like First American to score thirty in the NHL, I believe. Tom Roll. Yeah. Um, but I mean, Jacques Lemaire. I mean, Barry Melrose. Barry Melrose in his very short time with Tampa, right? I missed Barry. He got he got fired before I showed up. It was he Rick did. Tockett when I got there. Yeah, you had Tockett. Okay. Tockett. Yeah. And what's interesting, a... Tockett was the head coach, and Mike Sullivan was the assistant. Yeah. And then Mike Sullivan went on to be Pittsburgh's head coach, win the Stanley Cups with Rick Tockett as his assistant. As right. His assistant. Yeah. Right. Wild world. Right. Yeah. No kidding. No yeah. kidding. So, so I had to adapt. I'll put it that way. Like, well, it's it, it's, it, it says a lot uh, about a player when you. We, we talk so much like Dean Evison worked for three different head coaches with Washington, which is to me just remarkable because, uh, but, but players have to deal with this 
a lot. You have obviously a lot more than others, but uh, are there any guys that really stick out? I know, I know you played for Dave Allison. Here's a Milwaukee connection. You played for oh, Dave right. Allison in Peoria with Scott oh, yeah. Ford, by the way, with Scott Ford on that team. Yeah. So uh, Dave Allison, man, like I had, I had him on my podcast cause I had to. Absolutely. <laughs> is Well, I, well, I, greatest... we don't know any, if there's a better storyteller than Dave Allison ever. I mean like the, the quintessential Dave Allison moment is at the end of the interview. He goes, Mike, I'm on the lake. And I can hear the birds going in the background, like honking. Like, I gotta go. Like, All right, go ahead. <laughs> this is perfect. But David, David would do all these things that were so off the wall to try to oh, yeah. get a laugh out of us or a smile. And obviously, very old school in how he did things in a lot of ways. But you know, he had some humility to him. And, yeah. You know, like oh, we had our rookie party in Austin. And I'll tell you what, we had a couple of guys that shouldn't have been on the ice the day after, <laughs> like should not have been out there. <laughs> and I'll never forget the one guy, like guys are shooting pucks in his feet and he crashed into the boards and falls. And it was just a sloppy mess. And Dave just comes up to me and goes, son, I think you've had enough. Go ahead and get off the ice. <laughs> and it was, and, he, and this was not like him telling him to take a hike. He was being merciful. Just, right. Right. Just, just do He's it. He's like, I it's, it's son. It's okay. Just go ahead and get off the ice. And you know, we, we had one game against the Grand Rapids Griffins and he walks in the room and he starts like strutting in like a Southern general and he's talking like this and we're going to go out there and be winners and grinners. And like, he went on this like five minute speech and he never broke character. And our assistant coach, Scotty Allen, who to me was like, I think the ultimate coach, I had him in three. He's six. another guy I really love because I, yeah, knowing him in Omaha and, and in Quad cities, yeah. love the guy. I had I, Scotty and I worked together in Omaha, in Peoria, in Portland, well, and in Florida as well. So I, I, Scotty Allen to me is the best. Yeah, I love the man. Yeah. But he had to walk out of the room when Dave started doing this because he was laughing too hard. And Dave and Dave just like started shredding, like even like the Grand Rapids, the names of the players, right? Like and Tatar, who's who's got a name like Tatar anyway? It sounds like something you'd put on your fish and like. We're all just looking around going like, what's going on? And guess what? We got waxed like 6-1 that night. So the Southern General never came back out. But, you know, so many of the little stories he had, like, he, you know, one day his, his car broke down and he ended up spending the night in his truck. And then he realized that he had a screwdriver and he somehow like hot wired the thing. And he told us that moral of the story is always have your screwdriver, you know. And uh, did, did you ever did you ever hear him sing? He had oh, a God, set of yeah. pipes on him. Oh, Holy mackerel. Beautiful voice. One of the greatest oh. karaoke. Um, oh, gosh. An absolute karaoke superstar. Yeah. He's uh, the guy you don't want to go after on karaoke because it's yeah. like, oh, okay. Well, yeah. Dave we Allison stands out. He was incredible. Glenn Galton, I do think, was probably the best coach I had, really. And that was for two years in the ECHL. But just you could tell he was destined for much more than that by the amount of work he put in and the diligence and the systems that we had. Gully was incredible and really, really important for my career, obviously, because if you don't win games as a goal, you're not going anywhere. So I owe an awful lot to him. Um, yeah, man, I've had some good ones. I, I, when you have that many, how do you, how do you even pick one or two hey, out, right? One or sure. two. It's hard to do. Sure. When uh, you, with, with the number of teams you played, when did it start getting, you signed, you're, you, know, you know Drew McIntyre, I'm sure, or you know of him at least. You yeah. played against him somewhere along the way. And I remember asking Drew about his contract status. And he says, I'm only doing one-year deals because if they're not going to give me a shot, I want to go to an organization that will. Did you have that philosophy or was that all that was available that you bounced around that much? 
You know, that's, I have a completely opposite view of the world, I guess. And I, I have never spoken to Drew to me. Yeah. And this is just my opinion on this is Drew never got much of a shot, even with a one way. Right. And when you bounce around as much as him and I do, I think it's a detriment to your career. Now I took every, you don't build up that equity. You don't, you don't have anybody that's an advocate for you in an organization. And that's why homegrown goaltenders are the ones that get pushed along. Right. That's why Pekka Rene being signed had some juice because he was homegrown. You have a scout whose job is on the line for you to succeed. Okay. So once you become a veteran goaltender, you are, you're a piece of the puzzle. You're not a piece of the future puzzle. And what you have to do is completely, utterly outplay your other goaltender to get any opportunity. And that's what I had to do to get my NHL opportunities. You can look down the list at people I outplayed. They're some of my best friends in the game. But I had to outplay them. That was a competitive aspect. But when it came time for somebody to get a long recall to actually play, it wasn't going to be me. That's the way it was. And so I actually was looking for stability my whole career. I would have died for a three-year career, right? Or or three-year contract. contract. You know, like I... I had a two-year contract once with Florida and I was so excited because it was either I was going to be with the Portland Pirates or the Florida Panthers. And I was playing like the best hockey of my career at that point, And I was so amped about it. And I finally had some stability. Well, and then the Portland Pirates get sold and moved to Springfield, Mass, which I would have never signed again to go play there a second go around. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> you know, like those were the things that happened in a minor league career. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned the NHL and we always ask guys on here, Tell us about your first NHL recall and your first NHL game, but it's so different for goalies. You might get recalled five times and never play. And your first NHL appearance isn't a start. It's in relief. So talk, talk to us about that and what it's like as a goalie, as a, and as opposed to a regular player. Well, talk about a whirlwind for me. Like there are goalies that'll dress. I mean, I think Neil little dressed like 40 games before he finally got a, a minute in the NHL as a right. backup goalie, right? Like in the Philly organization. I'd never had an NHL contract until two days before my first game. Sure. <laughs> I'd never played an NHL preseason minute. So, wow. Like, wow. That's amazing. Talk about jumping in. Like I went to camp with St. Louis and I played a preseason game, but it was like B squad. You know what I mean? It was truly yeah. like, and they played an NHL game in the morning and we were in the afternoon or whatever. And it was, it was truly B squad. Right. So I'd never played against any of these guys. And I remember just thinking like, I think I can do this. I believe in myself. I've played, I've practiced against these shooters. Um, but I signed, I think February 2nd, played February 3rd. And I got tossed in midway through the game. I'd never dressed to dress an NHL game in my life. And wow. I'm sitting there in the, and it's in the, the Nassau Coliseum. It's a snowstorm. There's probably 7,000 people there. We had more in Hershey, like the two days before. And <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting there and you're like in the crowd in Nassau. It's one of those rinks that yeah, it like demonizes the backup goalie to the point that you have to sit in the crowd, which is insane right. that we can't build benches that can include a better long enough <laughs> right. tender, like especially Montreal, like you're across the way in Montreal. But so I'm sitting there in the corner and Kari Rama allows three quick goals in the second, like quick. And I look over and I can see Tockets on the bench and he's standing up and he's going like this. And he's waving me in from the corner and I'm going like, Holy Hanzus. And that's a Scott Ford line, by the way. Holy Hanzus. Like <laughs> I'm going, I'm going in. This is happening. Like, I can't believe this. And sure enough, I just skated out there. I was wearing primary color pads, blue, yellow, and red for the Norfolk admirals. 
I look like a Sunoco billboard and I've got a <laughs> Tampa Bay lightning Jersey on like a, just a kaleidoscope on the ice. And the reason being is because I, man, I was signed to an American league deal with Norfolk. I wasn't on an NHL deal. Like right, I didn't even right. go to camp with Tampa. Like I wasn't getting yeah. called up. Well, guess what? I outplayed Kari Ramo to the extent that I got rewarded there and you demanded Ram- it. Yeah, yeah. And they wanted Ramo to keep playing games in the minors while I was going to go back up Mike Smith for the rest of the year and maybe play two or three games. Well, I show up and Mike Smith's out the rest of the year and Olaf Colsey's out the rest of the year. And I ended up sticking, but you know, I went in, I, I went 11 for 11 in relief, made every save, handled the puck. Well, like, and I love to handle the puck. Right. So I made some plays and some passes and, I remember coming off the ice and I just pulled the Jersey over my head and I looked at it and just thought like, I, I did it. Like, yeah. I-, I cannot believe this, that I did it. You know, here I am a St. Louis kid. Yeah. And that's the big thing. Nobody from St. Louis had ever played in the NHL when I was growing up. No one. Right. You know, Cam Jansen literally and figuratively knocked the door down for us. He was the first one. Right. Uh, and maybe but look at all the guys who came after that, though. Oh, like, we're over two dozen players now, right? Yeah. I was the first goalie drafted from St. Louis ever, right? Ben Bishop and I played the same year, and now we've had more. But right. well, I didn't even know how to get to junior hockey. And I'm looking at yeah. this, and I'm just going, man, like – and then the emotional aspect comes in, right? You think your parent – like my grandpa and just all these things. And I could – that was – I remember always saying, like, even if I get an NHL preseason game, I'll feel like I've made it. Well, here I was now the next step. And yeah. it, it was just, it was incredible, you know? And then okay, the next, the next night in Pittsburgh, I started that game and uh, lost four, three in overtime. Then we went to Tampa and I got my first win. My parents were there. My, my girlfriend, now wife was there and one, nothing shut out over the Island, wow. you know, and just crazy, man. Don Koharski was my peewee coach and he's refereeing the game. And he's reffing the game. <laughs> yeah. And he called two of the most just like frivolous penalties on the Oilers oh. in the last five minutes to try to preserve it. And our guys decide to like chuck the puck around. And I get a breakaway from Akposo with seven seconds left that I have to stop. <laughs> That's a great story. That is, that Six is degrees, awesome. man. It's yeah. like, well, yeah, let's, let's talk about that. Well, we got a lot to talk about. Um, but I, I want to, you mentioned six degrees, uh, your podcast, uh, that, that has really, it, it, it's intriguing. And it's amazing. We talked about your social media presence before. Uh, it's amazing. The, the career you've had and have been able to build because you've been open and honest and truthful and, and interested in dealing with people, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, I learned that from a young age growing up in St. Louis. It, it, there's, I mean, I even had a post about it yesterday. It's the Stan Musial way. And yeah. Stan Musial never turned down an autograph. And he, his wife would want to leave the place. And he'd tell him, these are our fans. I owe yeah. it to them. And I, and I don't know why I gravitated towards that, but it always didn't sit right with me denying access to people, you know, and, and hiding things. And, you know, for as great as a lot of the people in our game are at, at being spokesmen for it, like we don't know who they are. Right. right? And, and I, I mean, even for me, I had built something of a fo- cult following and a brand on social media for being a primarily minor league goaltender. Right. Know, I'd carved out this niche for myself. And part of that was because I did writing for NHL.com and in goal magazine throughout my career. And, and I would do, take media seriously. I was producing videos for Peoria, but <clears throat> I don't know. I just enjoy it. The bottom line is I enjoy it. Like I, I like talking to people about the game. I think it, 
only helps grow the game when you kind of bring some perspective to people when they ask you questions. I love when people ask me like legit questions on Twitter. I really yeah. like that because it gives you a chance to, to expand on why something should be important or the uh, way it es- is. Especially for goalies mm-hmm. too. Like it's such a unique position. Even NHL coaches and AHL coaches will say, I don't really know much about goaltending. Yeah. Misunderstood. So, right. Exactly. I, I remember a tweet you had last year, I think it was in the playoffs or, and someone said it was a two on one in a game. And, mm-hmm. and someone said, well, the, the, obviously, you know, the goalie takes the shooter and the guy and, and the, and the D man takes the pass. And you're like, actually that's it's, it's not that simple anymore. And you yeah. really broke it down. That was insightful for me, a guy who's watched a million hockey games, yeah. but never thought about never thought about it from the goalie's perspective. Well, and part of it, like there's goalies who still have that old school mindset. Like it's not challenging the status quo. There's a lot of people that are just so stuck in their ways. They won't accept anything else. And whenever I make a comment like that, I always get somebody who played goalie or coached from the seventies or eighties that will instantly tell me how wrong I am that the goalie has a shooter no matter what. Right. And I'm like, that's fine. If you want to go listen to your cassette tapes and your Camaro, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm going to rig up my Bluetooth and my Spotify and my Acura. And I'm going to go listen to that. You know what I mean? Like I I'm, I think this comes from being a racing family and a family of tinkerers. There's always something better out there to find. And now that's what you're seeing in the NHL from the system standpoint is trying to always find a better solution. You can't just rest on what's always been the case. Two on ones are a great example. There's so many variables in those and ways that a defenseman can shut it down. It's about preventing the shot. It's not about who takes the shot. It's preventing the shot. Right. And, you know, I could go further into detail with it, but there's a lot of that with the position that just needs to be explained. And I, I honestly can't stand it when coaches say, I don't know anything about goaltending. Right. I just defer to my goalie guy because you're a head coach. You're a coach. You're a coach. You should understand everything. You need to take, know. Yeah. Take the time, put the effort forward to speak to goalie coaches, go to symposiums, understand the position, at least at a rudimentary level. So when your goalie coach talks to you, you know, the language. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that's I think that's imperative, even up to the NHL, that every coach should have a basic enough understanding of goaltending. You uh, you when you look around the NHL and you watch TV games, there are so many goalies are the best commentators, it seems. Or there are plenty of them anyway, if, if they're not the best or they become general managers, mm-hmm. uh, one or the other. There's a management job, management role or a broadcasting role. You with your experience looking at it, and you've got the broadcasting now, you've played for so many coaches and teams, and you've had the career you've had, and you led the players association on top of that. I mean, all of that experience. I mean, why would you want to lead the players association, first off? And two, do you have aspirations to maybe be a front office guy? Oh man. Well, I mean, just to speaking to the general manager aspect for players, especially goaltenders, is that we see everything in front of us. We're very observationist, right? Like It's like a catcher in baseball. You yeah, see everything. everything is there. You see all the little details, and we know who's responsible and who isn't. We yeah, can right. tell you. We don't need any stats to tell you who's responsible and who isn't on the ice and who can do special things. So that observation is why people end up being general managers. I do think goalies gen- tend, tend to be very analytical in how we do things. You know, we have, we look at our, we look at where shots are coming from. We look at stats. Like we look at things at a finer detail than a lot of players. Um, but the media side of it just comes from the fact that so many of us are creative. I, I really, I know everybody always says goalies are weird, but I wear weird with passion. 
that's me. I know it. I have interests in a lot of different things and I'm off the ball, off the wall, scatterbrained, goofy, but that all comes from that creativity. Like the goalie equipment's art, right? right. We're the art kids of the hockey, of the hockey world. Like we want to design our gear. We, we have this internet creativity for me. I, I mean, yeah, the right scenario, man, I'd love to go into management. It'd have to be the right scenario, but I love broadcast. Like I love what I do now. Like I, I, I love going on TV. Sorry. I always liked the microphone. I did. And that's, yeah. that's who you want on the microphone is somebody who enjoys yes. it. Not Wants scared to by do it. it. Like I, yeah. I'm not scared by it. I'm scared about my content, what I say, but actually looking at but a camera, hey, microphone. with that, camera, with microphone, that, whatever, cool, with that, with, you're scared of your content. You're scared of what you'll say. Is it, you work for a team, but you have to walk that line and you, and you have to deal with these guys. Yeah. But you also have to deal, and we mentioned your honesty before with fans. You also have to be honest with fans. And that's one thing, like a broadcaster that works for a team specifically is essentially a salesman. I want you to buy a ticket to the game or watch the game and, and, and patronize my sponsors and, mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. That's what I want. How do you walk that line? Well, I think you just do it truthfully. Right. Like I, I and you still, have more credibility, do you think, because you played? I hope. Yes, sure I hope would so. think so. I would think so. Yes. You know, I mean, there's times where <laughs> I wonder, <laughs> but I, I think that <laughs> there are guys I, who never did. Like Joe Montana was not a very good broadcaster. Well, Ray Bork struggled in it because I, and I think Dave Andrichuk, I, they, those guys come to mind. And I think it's because they were afraid to criticize because they understood maybe what was going on, but they didn't translate my my sympathy for the player because i've yeah. been through it to explaining to the audience here's my thought on it i remember when i first started this i didn't want everyone to beat anybody up and i still don't and right. there's been times where i've i've maybe phrased things how i didn't like it that could have been a little bit nicer but still gotten the point across i'll say that sure um but that's part of the growth and the learning of what i do right, right. like it's 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 harsh to say well, that's a rookie mistake but it, it's truthful it's real but maybe you phrase that differently by saying he's a young player. If he does this next time, maybe he looks like you can word things differently without having right. that really sharp edge. And that's what I've right. had to learn, but I have to stick to my guns and be truthful because I despite being a team employee, you're representative of the fans. Like the fans see through you. If you stand up there in Pollyanna, everything when it's been a terrible game, right? Like, I should be up there explaining why it's a terrible game. I should be yeah. up there being upset, as upset as a fan is or as upset as the players are. Yeah, the no, fans like smashing, can see it's a terrible game, right? Yeah, like not smashing microphones or anything, but you know what I mean? Like you still have to bring that passion and that honesty. If you're not honest as a broadcaster, no matter what, you're not going to be able to fulfill yourself, I believe. And I know I'm young in this, but it's, I really have to do that because otherwise I don't feel right with myself in the first place. You know, I, <laughs> I think that there's a way to walk that line and present things very positively. Like you want the team to win. You, you want to cheer for these players on and off the air, but you have to be accountable and you have to do it in a professional way that you don't crush anybody, but you still provide honest insight. Uh, when we were chatting or uh, DMing back and forth, setting this up, you said, uh, I'm only going to do this if we can talk about Scott Ford for at least, you know, 10 minutes or something like that, whatever it was, <laughs> yep. you didn't play with Scott for, you played with Scott for half a season, but obviously he had a, a big mark on, uh, left a big mark on you, I think. And, and vice versa. Uh, by and the vice way. versa. Yeah. yeah. So oh, talk man. about Fordo. I mean, he's a legend in Admiral's lore. He's the sheriff 
Every yep. we say the, who, who's the sheriff, everybody knows who who that is. So talk about uh, what your relationship what was like with Fordo on and off the ice. I can't tell you how happy I am that we got to play together because he's one of my favorite humans on earth. And again, yeah. half a season. But that's that's the power of being in a locker room with people. Right. A couple months, you can build these bonds and friendships. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll circle back really, really quick. I promise quick that Pekka Rene and I hadn't seen each other since we had Christmas dinner together in Milwaukee with Rich Peverly. Yeah. We, and we should talk okay. about that too, right? Oh, yeah. We'll later. Talk. But like, we hadn't seen each other since then, 2007 or so. Well, two years ago, I dress a game with, either with Ottawa, Dallas, maybe it's three years ago, whatever. And we see each other at the red line. And just huge smile, you know, how's it going? It's great. It's like, that's the power of being in the room with people. Yeah. Okay. And, and Pekka and I were never teammates for very long. We went to some development camps, but that's what it comes to. And the fact too, like the fact that Pekka respected the grind that I'd been through to be, get back to the NHL. Okay. He, he knew that, right. Like, yeah. and knew what I had to do to keep a career going. And that means a lot to people that have spent a lot of times in the minors when you get that, that little head nod or when, Dustin Bufflin, who I haven't seen since 2006, skates by and sees me backing up and just gets a huge smile, right? right. Again, haven't talked in forever. Like that means so much to somebody who's had a grind. Um, but flipping back to the, the, the original question about Fordo, he shows up in Peoria and just instantly, from his mannerisms to his words, talking about relics and getaway sticks and just <laughs> like so many different, holy hand Zeus and and we had a prior connection. I played with a guy named Todd Alexander, who was his best friend growing up. So we, we had kind of like this, this bond already. The Fort St. John's. Uh... That's right. Which is not a big community. And no. so we got to know each other. And my favorite Scott Ford story was just, you know, it's Thanksgiving and my parents come over and Ford has showed up with, you know, a bottle or two of wine and a big log of salami or summer sausage. And I think he <laughs> ate the whole summer sausage and drank maybe like... <laughs> both bottles of wine single-handedly. Like, I remember just going like, wow, this guy's unbelievable. And he just, and he held court the whole time, told stories and he'd just, he'd give it to guys if they showed up at the rink dressed like crap. Like, yeah. Jesus, he, just hold, hold yourself accountable. You look like hell. He, I'll never forget him. Like, uh, he just, you know, one guy's got like bedazzled jeans. And like, get some new jeans. You look like hell. <laughs> did you ever, did you ever play with Mike Santarelli? Yeah, in development camps, we were there. Oh, so Sorry. Fordo was so sick of the Santarelli brothers showing up to the locker room in sweatpants that yep. they sewed them shut. Oh, yeah. They sewed the, they sewed the sweatpants shut. Yep. I mean, we, I, he just – he left such an impression on him. And he's just such a good leader. Like, everybody knew – listen, in sports and in hockey especially, the locker room knows who the leader is. And it was unquestioned right. that he was. Yeah. Unquestioned. Yeah. And you don't always have that in the locker room and it's invaluable because as much as we talk about leadership by committee at times, and we all, we have got great group that no, you need a benevolent dictator in a locker room. You need yeah. one voice that you can look to when things are good, bad, whenever to say the right thing. And Florida was the ultimate example of that on and off the ice, the best. Right. And one of the funniest people I've ever known. Like you roll oh, yeah. it. If there's anybody that I could pick to have dinner with right now, he would be in the top one and a half. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, I don't know if you, you probably know this, Mike, but the admirals after he was dealt the, the lockout had ended and he kind of got squeezed. He had his first NHL yeah. deal. He was excited. Well, his second one probably, but his first deal was cracked. 
he was excited to be up in St. Louis and it, it never worked out because the lockout was going on. Um, and then he kind of got into a veteran situation. So he comes back to Milwaukee and, and had not really nothing good, but good things to say about Peoria. Uh, but the Admirals played Peoria in the final game in Peoria. Right. And at the end of the game, as the fans were, as the Rivermen, yourself included, were going to salute the fans. Fordo kept the boys on the ice to give a quick salute first. And yep. I mean, that's awareness. And as you said, that's, that's the leader that he is. Yeah. He knew that that was the end of the road for Peoria. We didn't know what was going to happen there, you know, and he'd been part of that. And um, man, like we just have so many stories of the things, <laughs> the things that we would get into and the things he would say. And, and just even afterwards, we've talked so often and remained such close friends. Like that's, it's the coolest thing to me that we still have that bond and, Man, like, was he tough too? God, like, so tough. Like, just oh, never, and you know I'll tell you what. You know what bothers me? Straight up, what bothers me is that and I'll be very frank. Like, nobody gave him an NHL game. Right. That eats at me. It eats right. at me that, frankly, like, organizations didn't do it. That you've it, got a guy who led your minor league players for so long, who made them who they are in the NHL, groomed who, every prospect in Nashville. That, yeah, and. You're telling me that you couldn't wheel him out for one game to play right. six or seven minutes, like he was going to hurt your team that bad. Right. And game sixty-three on uh, in yeah. end of and, February. And listen, right. This is this is me being totally honest here and projecting what I feel. This is opinion. Okay, I'm not yep. slamming any particular organization because he played in several, but like these are the types of players you need to reward. Yes. Like one yeah. game for him would have meant the world to play in the NHL and to, to, to really like, like we, we validate our own careers. We know what matters, but that game in the NHL means everything. And when you've been knocking on the door that long, it's, I know I'm not alone in that opinion. We love to see people get rewarded for those things when they get that chance. Like we Aaron mentioned, you know, oh, I was go just going to say, like Aaron mentioned, every Matias Ekholm, Roman Yossi, Ryan Ellis, all D partners of Scott Ford. All of them. And Ford, Fordo says when he puts together presentations on defensive play for Nashville, uh, you know, when they're down at, at training camp or whatever, that he'll he'll make note of that. He'll just stop and just say, hey, you know what, all of these guys, it's, it's David Poyle, it's Scott Nickel. And so just to, you know, he lets them know that, hey, this this Fordo guy, he, he did okay for I, I had a hand, yeah. I had a hand. Think about, think about how humble he's been. You'd never hear him complaining about not getting an NHL game. Right. No. Like, right. He did his job to the best of his ability. Uh, and, and it's the reason and why he, he's so valuable. And, and to your point, like he fought the heavyweights, right? Everybody. He fought the biggest guys. Oh, yeah. Pelusos and yeah, oh, God, whoever yeah. it was. Pete Vanderveers and, and yeah. Dale Bootland. Like, and that's back when no Booter. I remember being on the bench with Milwaukee and I, Claude Noel screaming at Bootland, we're going to get you, Bootland. Like, that's when Booter was like leading the league in penalty minutes and being the ultimate rat. But yeah, like the league was scary back then. Like, man, yes. you had I monsters, 6'5, 250, and Fordo fought all of them. And like, yeah. And I'll tell you what, like, Fordo could, listen, Fordo could have fun. And he'd be the first guy on the bike at 6 30 in the morning, right? Right. Like, he was an absolute demon in the weight room. He took care of his body so well. Like it was ingrained in him that I can still play the game. Like I can still set the example. I can still go hard if I want right. to, but he was always the first one in unbelievable. Did you ever we play golf to... with him? Oh, I'm sorry. I keep, I keep going no, on and on. I did. I did. You know what? I don't think I ever did. And it's probably good. Cause I, I, 
I would have slowed him up. <laughs> yeah. He loves, he loves to golf and, hit and uh, oh, he takes it. I just strange. love swinging the wrenches. We're going to go swing the wrenches. <laughs> You do great impressions, by the way. Gully and Jesus, Porto. Like, and, no it's, kidding. It's like, really good. Well, you know what? My best, have? my best one's Mitch Korn, but I've been com- put completely on silence. I can't do that one again. So out of respect <laughs> to my dear friend, Mitchell Korn, I will not do. Who you can't even have on your podcast. That's right. right? No. It's, uh, b- believe me, we have uh, we, we're, we yeah. have the same experience we've with, dealt with we've We've dealt with the, the Islanders. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Lane Lambert. We want to have Lane on here so yeah. badly. Can't do it. Yeah. Um, we, we, we need to come wrap things up here and we, I want to close. We always close with one question. I want to get to that in a second because you had mentioned the Christmas situation in Milwaukee, but, um, six degrees with Mike McKenna, the podcast, is that still at, you're still doing that? I, you know what? I, I put it on hiatus. We'll see how long to be honest with okay. you. Podcast market right now is so flooded that I've had trouble. Hello. Getting, yeah. Getting guests <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, absolutely. Um, it's frustrating because I know it's great content. It's been a huge, huge pleasure to talk to some of these heroes of mine. Uh, but I'm getting to the point where it's getting hard getting them. I'm not making any money doing it. And it's right. taking me like eight hours a piece to produce because I do everything, everything okay. uh, from the editing to the promos to all that. So I'm hoping it can come back. If anybody wants to be a benefactor, hit me up, slide into yeah. my DMs. <laughs> Um, but that's kind of what's been holding it up. But yeah, it's, it was a great exercise in, in learning how to interview and really another thing that made me diversified and able to do what I do currently in media. It's, it's huge. And, and I wanted to touch on one in particular, when you get, we talk about goalies and goalie nerd, you get Mr. Goalie, you mm-hmm. get Glenn Hall on your pod. I mean, couldn't what is that? It. I mean, this guy, you talk about legends. He's a legend of a legend. I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't. And, and for him to just spend that time with me, you know, I asked for 20 minutes and I think he gave me 40 and you know, Glenn's not a young man by any stretch. And, you know, I spoke with his son and his son said, yeah, he'd, he'd love to, he loves to talk goalie. Wow. And I was nervous for it, you know, because first it's, you know, there's a generational gap there too. I want to make sure I'm presenting well and asking him appropriate questions and trying to get the most out of his career that I could without being pressing or, or asking frankly, stupid questions. I didn't want to waste his time. Right. And I couldn't believe first how funny he was and how humble, uh, but more so his recollection is just phenomenal. And his insight into the position, there's so much that he said about goaltending from his era that still applies to today's game. And I just, it was the most fascinating conversation. And I remember getting off of the phone and it was one of my early ones, maybe like 10 or 12. And I just, I remember looked at my wife and I went, that was unbelievable. That was Mr. Yeah. Bailey. Like I, I'm, I couldn't believe he would even talk to me, you know? And, and it kind of continued, you know, Grant Fuhrer. Hey, sure. Yeah. Let's talk. Like, are you kidding me? Like Grant, like, dude, I, I'm still using your stick pattern from when I was a kid. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I, big time hero worship, Ron Hextall. I wanted to be Ron Hextall and score a goal. Right. Well, I did when I was 17 and I got to talk to him about it. I, it it's, did you, you scored a goal, huh? When you were playing juniors? Yeah. In a Springfield, Junior Blues, North American Hockey League, the first in the history of the league by a goaltender. I was 17. Did you 18. wreck guys' calves, but like Ron Hextall? No. Wreck, wreck I wasn't, ankles, t- wreck I wasn't, tough, and- wasn't tough enough. I mean, <laughs> wasn't afraid to use my stick, but I was not tough enough to do what he did. Did you ever get in a goalie fight? Yes. Uh, one. And it was like two polar bears dancing for 15 seconds. And 
And then you falling unceremoniously to the ice at center ice in Las Vegas. But I'll tell you what Wrangler fans thought I was a folk hero and the toughest guy. This was such projection. (laughs) You would never take that. You you're tired. Yeah. yeah, You bet. Like that's definitely, definitely not. I'm not taking anything. (laughs) You actually got the wrong guy, but no, it was, Tom Lawson went bananas. He was the goalie for the St. San Diego Gulls and he had an emergency backup that night. So he, he couldn't get pulled unless he got kicked out of the game or hurt. That's how it works. The rules in the ECHL. Right. Well, we're killing him like five, one, six, one. And he decides to start a line brawl because he wants out of the net. <laughs> and so he stuck one of my teammates and I let that one slide. And then he stuck another guy and our team, our player kind of gave him a shove. And I was like, all right, my numbers go. look good. I think I was 27 for 28 on the night. So it was in the back of my head. Okay. I'm going to get the win. My save percentage is good. Let's do this. Let's go. So, Let's go. Here we go. Center ice, you know, and like, I threw this, like, I had no clue what I'm doing. All I could think of was like, <laughs> I need to grab onto him. That's all I could think of is I have to grab onto him. And I just threw this wild bomb that missed by like a foot and a half. He grabs my arm. He, I grab his and we just started doing this. <laughs> And then I finally got my arm three and tried to throw this like uppercut that again, missed by a mile and got me off balance and down we went. And I was third star <laughs> of the game. I came out in like my shorts and t-shirt waved to the crowd. Right. That was, they that. loved it. They did. They, yeah. I, <laughs> I'm glad it was my only fight though, because man, like it was pre YouTube, which is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. Mike, we finished these uh, all the time with asking about your time in Milwaukee. And when you think of Milwaukee, what do you think mm-hmm. of? I, th- I think of the Holiday Inn that I stayed at for three weeks, <laughs> the amount of walking I did to the Bradley Center from there, um, the interior of the building. No, I, I, you know, I actually really like Milwaukee. Like I, like I said, like I, I brought friends up there to go to see the IndyCar race at the Milwaukee Mile and go to a Brewers game one weekend. Like I love Milwaukee. A lot of fun yeah. downtown area. Um, we had a blast. But I think for me in my hockey time, it really was – probably the best memory was that Christmas that I had, you know, yeah. I, you know, I listen, like, tell, tell us about it. Yeah. What, yeah hockey's uh, hockey's incredible. That. So yep. I knew I was going to be there through Christmas. I didn't care. Like I, I sure I wanted to be home, but I wanted an opportunity yeah. and I was willing to take anything. And Rich Peverly and I were three-year teammates at St. Lawrence. Right. You know, and, and that's a bond all its own, a college teammate. And so I had that coming in and it got to be Christmas time and, Pevs and, and Pekka invited me over, you know, and, and in hockey, we don't really think of these things. And at the time I probably didn't think a whole lot of it. It was just, Hey, great, cool. Well, Pekka's got some of the tr- traditional, you know, finished food at the house. And it was just, man, it was really special. And I, I think that's lost on people that don't play a team sport sometimes that you can walk in a locker room and be invited over to somebody's house the next day when they know that you need somebody. You need a human yeah. being in your life, right? Because right? it's the right thing to do. And I, I don't think every job has that. I know every job doesn't have that. Absolutely. Right? To, to just to smile at people, to say, hi, how's your day going? Wonder about them. Be truly caring and genuine. And right. man, it was awesome. We had dinner together. We had a great time. I have no idea if we went out and won our next game or anything. It didn't matter. You know, didn't but probably was... played the next day. Probably played on the 26th because we yeah, always do. It might have been. But it, man, it was just really cool. And again, like it kind of relates back, like Pebs and I have been great friends forever the whole time, but just 
having that smile with Pekka at the Someone, red line. Having somebody reach out you to know, you. That many years later, a guy who's got 70 sheets in the bank. And yes, it doesn't matter. He's still just Pekka. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's really cool. But I remember asking Mitch Korn, like, hey, when Pekka signed that big deal, I was like, is he getting you a Mercedes or what out of this or a Rolex? And <laughs> I'm hoping for, oh, I almost did it. He goes, I'm hoping for a Timex. So <laughs> Timex. <laughs> a, a, a quick note for you on the holiday in and Dave Allison and Claude Noel is sort of bringing it all together at when Dave Allison was the coach of the admirals. That's where we had our team Christmas party. And David had a couple and got up at the, in the middle of it and sang the first Noel to Claude uh, in front of all <laughs> the, the team, the players, the staff. And uh, that's surprised. my, yeah, not surprised at all. And he did an awesome job, of course. Let me finish it on this then. It's again a Dave Allison story. And we're in Peoria. It's right before Christmas time. And the way the locker room works, the coach would come in around the corner and enter. And Dave loved that because he had these <laughs> grand entrances. And you could hear him coming. So we're all in there beforehand. And it's I think it's the last game before Christmas. And sure enough, we hear it bellowing from the coach's room. Oh, come all ye faithful. And like, right as he said faithful, he entered the corner, he rounded the corner with his arms out like an angel. Faithful, joyful. And like, as soon as he got to like joyful and triumphant, I'll never forget. I looked over at Taylor Chorney, my teammate there. He's a defenseman, Ama yep. another amazing guy. And I see Chorney go, joyful. Like he like <laughs> nodded his head and went, yeah, we're doing this. And the whole locker room like went into "Oh Come All Ye Faithful," no! all singing it. Dave's parading around like an angel with his arms outstretched in the middle of the locker room, and I we probably got our ass kicked that night. I can't even remember, but like, man, what a moment! Like it was oh so Dave Allison. Gosh, and <laughs> that's unbelievable. Yeah, and Chorney just when Chorney made that decision to joyful and <laughs> let's go, boys. You know? Yeah. Like, I, we had a lot of fun. I'll say that we weren't a great team at Peoria. We actually owned Milwaukee. Like my record okay. against Milwaukee that year was, was lights out. And then yeah, ironically, right. Jeremy Smith and I ended up being teammates the next year. And we had had those huge goalie sure. battles between the two teams, which ended up being, you know, really cool the following season to be with each other. But right. Oh man. Alley cat. Come all ye faithful Christmas time. <laughs> when his, uh, yeah. When, when we can turn on late night TV and see Dave Allison sings, Sinatra or David, whatever, then that, that'll be, they'll, he'll really have made it. Yep. Yeah. He'll really have made it. Uh, Mike, you've been unbelievably gracious with your time. Uh, and by the way, you can see Mike, uh, Vegas Golden Knights broadcasts. Uh, if you have the NHL TV mm -hmm. uh, or the NHL center ice package, whatever that's going to be, whatever, whatever you may have, uh, you can see Mike's work there. Of course, his uh, podcast, look that up. And even if there hasn't been a new one, it's on hiatus. You can check out the old ones. As Mike said, he's looking for someone to sponsor it. Uh, so go to Six Degrees with Mike McKenna to look uh, for all of that stuff. Mike, uh, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time. Um, as we said before, we've, we met you 15 years ago and probably haven't talked since, but obviously seen you several times in Milwaukee over the years and admired your game, obviously, and admired your career. And we wish you nothing but the best. Oh, thank you. And I'm... I wish I'd given you a better 12 minutes uh, as a player, <laughs> but <laughs> well, it's, fun. you, it's you funny because you know like what? I always, I, I, Milwaukee's one of those places I always wished I'd had a lot of time to play, you know, right. and I really love that city. And I know that it would have been, 
it would have been a great place to play. And I know how much players have enjoyed being there. So I look forward to the American league being back there again for you yes. guys really soon. So do we thank you for, yeah. for, for yourselves, for the fans, for everybody, because man, it's a great hockey market and a place I always enjoy playing. All the best. Awesome. That's Mike McKenna. Thanks for listening to this Milwaukee Admirals podcast.